You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, J-Town. In Ecclesiastes, we discover that a life spent in pursuit of pleasure, achievement, and control will ultimately leave us empty-handed. Life isn't about what we can obtain, but about what we already have, and learning to receive it from God with gratitude. Welcome to Ecclesiastes, life as gift, not gain. Awesome, man. My, my name is Lyle, in case we've never met before. I'm one of the pastors here, and, and just like Zach said a little bit earlier, just uh, if you're first time, just want to say welcome. This is a, a day we celebrate with baptisms. We had one in the nine, as Zach said. We've got four uh, in this service, so this is a, a time of rejoicing. So we're glad you're here with us. Uh, encourage you, if you feel comfortable, just like Zach said, to make your presence known. You can fill out a Connect card. It's in a seat back in front of you. You can drop that off at the blue start here sign. We'd love to give you a, a gift. We'd have a gift for you there. Uh, and actually, it's a, a good gift, so uh, encourage you to do that. Um, but yeah, thankful to see you here uh, this coming Sunday. So if you got a Bible, encourage you to go to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Before we, uh, we jump into that, every week when we gather together, we do. We remind ourselves of how generous and kind and gracious God is to us, that it's through His loving kindness that He has drawn us here, and He's brought you to faith in Jesus Christ if you call yourself a Christian. And we don't pay this back. It's grace. It's a gift. Uh, but the way that we respond with gratitude is being open-handed with our stuff. And we're generous with that. And so, um, yeah, we don't, we're not ashamed of this. And we call people to give. We believe that's the best way to live. It's the best way to use your money. Uh, give first. And so uh, you can give in several ways online there. If you brought a physical gift like a check or cash, you can drop it off in the wooden boxes on your way out. So, um, so yeah, thank you for the way that um, if you're a member and a regular tender that you've just been giving generously to our church. Just really, really appreciate that. So yeah, if you're uh, just joining us, we're spending several weeks in this book called Ecclesiastes. We're entitled this series, Wise, uh, kind of learning how to live uh, life as a gift instead of gain, instead of kind of having this posture toward life, instead of always having this posture of gaining and grabbing. And so if you're, if you're new to the Bible, uh, which, is, which is great, no, no problem with that, shouldn't feel any shame about that at all, uh, but there are certain kind of genres within the Bible, and so Ecclesiastes kind of falls in this wisdom genre. And so the reason why I tell you that is it's just important for you to know that when you go to a book like Ecclesiastes, you've got to understand its wisdom literature so that when you interpret it and try to apply it to your life, uh, it doesn't leave you kind of like... I don't know, going, oh my gosh, what in the world's going on here? And so Ecclesiastes is one of four wisdom books in the Old Testament. So you got Job, you've got Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Songs of Solomon. And so, uh, so what we've talked about is that Ecclesiastes is sort of the exception to the norm. And, and all I mean by that is that if you just camped out in the book of Proverbs, you can end up really frustrated uh, because you can do all the right things and not get the results that you wanted. And there's nothing wrong with the book of Proverbs. We need it. Generally speaking, all those things are true. If you, if you give a gentle answer, usually that will turn away wrath, right? But sometimes you get a gentle answer and you still get the F-bomb, right? You, you do. And so, and I, and I know that's a really trite kind of explanation of that, but some of you are waking up 40 years later and you've been a Christian for a really long time and you're going, man, I... I thought I lived in a right way, and this is the result? This is what I'm getting? And so sometimes you ask questions like, man, what did I do wrong? 
Or did I do something wrong to deserve this? Is God punishing me? And if you're willing to step in there, and I think God invites you to, sometimes we go, did God do me wrong? That's why we need the book of Ecclesiastes. As confusing and sort of depressing that it can be, it's a gift. Life in a fallen world inhabited into a fallen body does not always work out the way you had dreamed or thought it would be. We had a, um, a welcome lunch last Sunday. We've done these about uh, three times over the course of this year. It's one of the ideas that was birthed out of COVID, which is a blessing, even though there's all kinds of things that were like, ah. uh, I don't know if you know this, but it was a year to go today that we gathered back in person uh, after spending 12 weeks online. And so, um, and here we are without mask and God's been faithful to see us through a really hard year and looking forward to seeing what God does in the midst of our community over the next 12 months too. But one of the blessings amidst all the difficulties of this year is that we have seen a lot of new families and new individuals have showed up at our church. And one of the ways that we want to kind of get to know them and and kind of help their belonging, kind of feel a part of this church, especially in a season where we weren't meeting in groups as consistently, is we did these welcome lunches. And so they're just really low-key, fun time, eat lunch, sit around a table, have conversation. That's all it is. And then I get up and give like a little five-minute talk. And my, my five-minute talk is just kind of like, you know, what would you say to new people that are rolling in? And, and I usually change it up. I wish I'd kind of have a spiel, but I don't always have a spiel. And, and then honestly, you can ask Ashley this, like, right before I got up to do my little five-minute talk. Hey, you got any thoughts on what I should say? <laughs> it's like, do you, can you give me the feel of the room? And so she gave me some thoughts. I don't know if they were helpful. Maybe they were. Uh, I, she's not in here, so I can't really make, make fun of that. But um, they were probably really, really helpful. But this is what I said, all right? I said, for 10 years, this is what we've tried to do as a church. We've tried to be really honest. And what I mean by that is, is we've tried to be honest about the Christian life that things don't really work out. Marriages do end in divorce, as tragic as that is. People who are genuinely followers of Jesus Christ take their lives. You can raise your children and you can be a, a wonderful, loving presence and they still can turn away from God. Like, what we've attempted to do for 10 years is speak honestly about that. Honestly about that. And, and, and not try to give tried answers, but get space for people to sit in that. Like, that's really hard. It really is. And then on the other hand of this, the other element of this, we don't want to just stay because the reality is Ecclesiastes is a book of honesty, right? It's like, oh my, we've got 12 sermons of depression, right? It kind of feels like that a little bit for me, maybe not for you, but it is. It's kind of giving you an honest look at life under the sun, life in a fallen world. And then at the same time, we want to be honest, but we also want to be a people of hope and want to hold both of these intentions and hold both of these together. That the Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And we as a church believe that Jesus bodily, his body was raised from the dead and he is sitting in the right hand of the father, ruling all things. And someday he's coming back. A bodily resurrection, right? We believe that. That same spirit that raised him from the dead dwells in us. 
as followers of Jesus Christ. I don't know all the four ramifications of that, but I know this, that brings hope. That no matter how dark and horrible your circumstances and season of life is, there is always hope, always hope. And that hope may not be experienced in this life, but it will ultimately be experienced in the new heavens and the new earth. And that kind of hope helps you to hold on. And so that's what, man, I'm telling you, we haven't done this perfectly by any stretch of the imagination. We have not. But that's what we've tried to do over these last 10 years. And that's part of the gift of the book of Ecclesiastes. It gives you an honest look at life. It actually gives voice to what you're really asking questions about. Unfortunately, it takes us about 11 chapters till, till we get to some hope, right? It's like, oh, we got to weed through some stuff, all right? But this morning, uh, we're looking at a very famous poem in here, and I'm hoping this morning be a little more hopeful uh, before we come back and, and talk about the, the angst that this poem was written in next week. Uh, but I just want to encourage us in honor of reading God's word. Let's stand together. So hear the word of the Lord. There is an occasion for everything and a time for every activity under heaven. A time to give birth, a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a, a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to avoid embracing. A time to search and a time to count as loss. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war for war and a time for peace. What does the worker gain from his struggles? This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to you in love. Let's pray together. Father, help us as we try to learn and understand and live in light of what you've revealed to us through this poem. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So yeah, like I said, this is one of the most famous poems in the book of Ecclesiastes, as well as probably in all of the Bible. Maybe it stands next to Psalm uh, 23. It's been heard at weddings. Um, it's been read at funerals and, and a peace treaty also, which is kind of crazy. Uh, and there's something uh, beautiful and rhythmic and soothing with the way that the poem is written. You, you kind of feel the, uh, the rhythm of it. And uh, the reality of it, and we'll get to this more next week, even though it feels soothing and rhythmic and there's a beauty to it, it there is some angst in this poem. It, it's written out of um, kind of more of a protest against life. And, and you get a hint of that in verse nine there, where it says, what, what, is, what, what do we gain from all the struggle that we experience in life? And so what I want to do this morning is not unpack the angst. That's the second half of this chapter. I just want to look at this poem and and really ask this question, what is, the, what is the wisdom that we can gain from this poem? What is, what is embedded in this poem to where we hear what is required of us when it comes to wisdom? 
And when I think of wisdom, guys, when, I, when the Bible talks about it, uh, the best way to kind of like summarize this, and I've heard this from somebody else, I don't know who, but I've heard it from somebody else. Uh, it can be more described as skillful living. So wisdom within the Bible is not necessarily getting this, you know, knowledge ahead of time of what God's doing in your life or what he's doing in the large scale of the world. No, that's not what God does. You'll find this out next week. You know, we've heard that passage scripture says, hey, God's put eternity in your heart. And it's true. He has put eternity in your heart and you long for a relationship with God, but he's actually put eternity in your heart to make you want to ask why, but you never get an answer. You know, whether you know this or not, God has you on a need to know basis. Amen. And so what we, what we see with wisdom is not like, oh, I get all these insights. No, wisdom is skillful living. It's comparable to like driving. So when you first learn how to drive, um, whoever taught you, whether it's your mom, dad, an uncle, whatever, good friend, they probably didn't answer all the why questions that you had about driving. For example, why is this not a four-way stop? This seems a little dangerous, right? You know, why is this guy going 50 miles an hour in the, the fast lane? Get over for crying out loud. Why is there always construction on Gene Snyder for crying out loud? Finish the job, right? Finish the stinking job, right? You're saying like, there's all, why, you know, why is there a curve in this road? It, it looks like to me, it'd be better just to go straight through the hillside. Why, like you, you can't answer those questions. Those are not helpful questions to answer in the moment when a deer pops up on you. You know what I'm saying? Like, you just got to learn how to adjust and react. That's what kind of skillful driving is. As one author puts it, the speed and appropriateness of your reaction to things and soundness of your judgment as to what scope a situation gives you, you simply try to see and do the right things in the actual situation that presents itself. That's skillful driving. Not answering all the whys. It's like, all right, here's what's presented to me. I got to make some adjustments. That's similar to wisdom. That's what I mean by skillful living. J.I. Packer goes on and says in his book, Knowing God, talking about wisdom, he says this, skillful living or biblical or what an understanding of wisdom is in the Bible is this, the effect of divine wisdom is to enable you and me to do just that in actual situations of everyday life. To live wisely, you have to be clear-sighted and realistic, ruthlessly so, and looking at life as it is. So that's what I wanna do in this poem. What wisdom do we gain here? What is wisdom requiring of us from this poem? The first one is this, got two, and that's it. Hopefully real concise and, and short, right? Uh, the first one is this, is that we must recognize that we are not in control. In fact, I would put before you, that's the point of the poem. And it's interesting, right? Because I, I can hear you, right? Yeah, I know that. I know that loud. Hear it all the time. Blah, blah, blah. Give me something else. Well, here's my story, right? I need to be reminded of this quite often. It's interesting how much we need to be reminded of what is so obvious in our lives. Wisdom will require you to recognize that you have no control. So I don't know how that lands on you. For some of you, you're like, hallelujah, right? It's like, praise God, right? For some of you, it may create a lot of anxiety. 
in fear because you, you feel your vulnerability. So there's a, there's a part of control that, that's good. Like we're all made in the image of God and, and part of being made in the image of God is God has given you dominion. And part of exercising that dominion is you do have control over things. And that's, that's good. It's, it's kind of a good desire for that. So what, what, the, what the poem is speaking against here or revealing to us and what I'm trying to push us a little bit is where we have this kind of over-exaggerated desire for control or this over-exaggerated sense of control that actually we think, and I know this is cliche, but I'm just gonna say it anyways, that we really think that we're the masters of our own destiny. That if I do this, this, and this, then I can control certain outcomes. That if I do this, then I can kind of, you know, live into the joy and the seasons of life that are more enjoyable and avoid the ones that we don't like. And this poem, and if you'll just take some time and look at your own life, you would recognize that that is just so farce. There's two ways I, I see in this poem that He's highlighting for us and reminding us of our absolute lack of control. And the first one is this, is the word that he uses for occasion. Look at verse one. He says this, there is an occasion. Some translations have season for everything, a time for every activity under heaven. The word that is translated for us occasion here or season in verse one carries this idea of a pointed time or more specifically, a predetermined season, meaning that we are not the ones that are de determining the events that he's laying out here, these, these kind of 28 seasons, so to speak. So you don't determine when you are born. I mean, I know it's obvious, but just can we just state the obvious? You don't control when you're born. You don't determine when you die. You don't determine when you laugh or when you mourn. In fact, if you think about it, you're, you're responding to circumstances that are happening to you that you had no control over. You don't determine when you plant or when you uproot. And some of you that are into gardening, you might be going, oh, objection, Lyle, right? And if you grew up in Kentucky, you know the calendar. And that calendar is what? You get your garden in Derby weekend, right? If you don't get it in by Derby weekend, you're, you're toast. You're not going to have much at all. Do you, do you guys know what I'm talking about? Man, my grandma hammered that in my head for years. And for some reason, my wife and I cannot follow through with that little simple plan, right? That's why we don't have tomatoes. We never have peppers that look like anything. It's like they get too late in the season and they all dry up, shrivel and die. But, but here's the point. Yes, thanks for a little bit of ladder. Yeah, you do plant in the spring and you do kind of harvest in the fall. But the point that the poet is trying to make here is you're not the one who is orchestrating the weather patterns of our world so that at this specific time you plant. That is not you. That's God. So the first way we see him kind of highlighting this idea of how little control we have is just by using that word occasion, your season. It's, it's a predetermined time or event. You, you don't have any control. That second way we see this is how the, the, the poem is put together. If you'll notice when I read through this, there's no 
kind of chronological sequence or even a discernible purpose in it. It's, it feels sort of random and that's on purpose here because he wants you to feel your lack of control in these small little things of life. There is a time for everything, everything as one author says, but we are not arranging them on our stopwatch. None of us have the power to control and say, Next week or this coming week, I've got 20 minutes of sorrow and that is it, right? And I'm putting it on my watch. And once 20 minutes is done, I'm done with sorrow this week, right? I mean, we can, we can say that, but you have no control over that. You can say, all right, I'm gonna go to bed every night this week stress-free. I mean, you might drink a lot of alcohol to get that every night, right? Which isn't wise and sinful, amen, right? One writer says it like this, you know, life might be a dance, but we did not or do not pick the music. Look, guys, I'm not saying, nor is this poem saying that there's not a place for us to plan, that there's not a place for us to be wise about the future, that there's not a place for us to think through contingency stuff, right? I'm saying that's not what the writer is saying here. There's a lot of wisdom in doing that, but there is still going to be times of uprooting and tearing down no matter how much you plan. There are gonna always be these times that you have absolutely no control over. And what the poet, the preacher is trying to invite us into is that we would learn to receive rather than resist these rhythms, that we would learn to be this toward these circumstances and seasons in life that come to us that we have no control over instead of this. Because when we're resisting, I put before you, you're missing the invitation of what God wants to do in your life in that moment. And I know it's really easy for me to stand up here and say this when you're going through a season that's really, really hard. And what the preacher is wanting us to do, not only in this chapter, but as you've seen over and over, it's like, all right, I'm going to, by the grace of God, receive even this as a gift, as a gift. So wisdom will require for us to recognize how little of control you really have. Secondly, and this plays into the first one, wisdom will require that we must recognize the season change and make adjustments. So we, so we don't have any control over when that season change happens, all right? But we gotta recognize the season change. And this, when's the time, the occasion that changed? And guys, the, 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 the most important piece of this is that we've got to make adjustments. Now notice here, notice, uh, it's, it's obvious here, but what part of what the preacher is trying to help us see is that life is made up of seasons. And what he has done here in this poem, if you counted these, if you didn't, that's okay, you can go home and count today. There are 14 pairs or seven groups of two that are making up this poem, which gives us 28 seasons. And the number seven is really important as you, if you're familiar with the Bible, it kind of carries this idea of 
perfection, or another way of stating it specifically within this poem, it's symbolic for completeness, for wholeness. And so this is a skillful and artful way for the preacher to kind of emphasize the totality of things that are contained in someone's human experience in life. It's not an exhaustive list in any stretch of the imagination, but it is a summary of these seasons that all of us as a human being experience. And this list is descriptive, not prescriptive. And all I mean by that, especially when you get to the end of it, when it talks about killing and hatred or war, we got to remember that the whole of this poem is just describing human activity. It's not making moral pronouncements upon any of this. It's just saying, hey, this is the seasons that we, we live in and go through. So there's There's 28 of these, and there are things that we delight in. There are seasons that we find great joy. For example, a time to give birth. Now, ladies, I get it, man. The moment of giving birth is not delightful, right? It's like, oh, you're a guy talking. You think that's delightful? Yeah, whatever, right? I I get that. I do. Um, well, I, I don't. I, I've watched, right? Right, so got to do a lot of nuancing up here. But when it's done, it's so joyful, so beautiful. To hold that precious child in the palm of your hand. There's a time to plant. I'm not a big gardener, but I do enjoy planting, like mulching. I mean, it's hard work, but I love the end result. We planted some blueberry bushes about four years ago, had to transplant them. And now for the first time, we actually have blueberries. And we really think we did something. It's like, I'm surprised we didn't kill it for crying out loud, man. But it's been fun going out there picking those bad boys. I can't tell if they're any better than Walmarts. I'm kind of like convincing myself they are, but... I don't know. It's just the joy of growing something, right? And trying to keep the animals away all at the same time. Um, even though I can't shoot a gun in my neighborhood, I kind of wanted to a couple times. But a time to, to plant, a time to heal, a time to build. I don't know about you guys, but I just like walking through Lowe's, just kind of piddling. <laughs> just kind of walking through there, imagining what I might build, right? I know I can't, but I imagine it, right? A time to laugh. A time to dance. Today is a day of dancing. Anytime we celebrate new life here through baptism, it's a day of dancing. A time to embrace. A time to love. A time for peace. So those are the seasons of delight and joy, but they're also, as we all know in life, There are seasons that disturb us or disquiet us. A time to die, a time to uproot, a time to tear down, a time to avoid embracing, a time to be silent, and a time to hate. The poem itself and the way that it kind of has this rhythm speaks and communicates to the complexity of life that all of us experience that life is filled with both delights and disquiets or disturbing seasons, both good and hard, comfort 
and confusion. And here's what I want to say. Wisdom, yes, is knowing who God is. Wisdom is knowing who you are in light of who God is. Wisdom is knowing that you have very little control over life, but it's also knowing the seasons and the times that you are living in personally, not just on a large scale, but personally, the season and time that you're living in and making the adjustments that it brings. Or I would even say it a little harder Wisdom is knowing the season that you are in and then making the adjustments that that season demands of you. And if you refuse to make those adjustments, listen to me, you're gonna wound yourself and you'll probably wound others. I mean, all of us in this room have probably been in, in situations where we're in the moment what we needed from someone is to weep with us just to sit and weep with us. And what they did was give advice. Or worse, maybe laughed. It was a time for them to plant and invest in you. Instead, they uprooted. Some of us have learned the hard lessons because we, we weren't discerning and, and friends of ours needed us to, to sow and instead we tore. They needed us to be silent and instead we spoke. We are more often like Job's friends. If you're familiar with the book of Job, when we, we have a tendency to go in ready to apply what we've learned from the Bible, when what we really needed to do was just extend compassion and shut our mouths and just sit in the complexity with someone instead of giving little trite answers to the complex problem that someone is dealing with. That's what I mean. Wisdom is acknowledging what season you are in, what season your neighbor is in or your family is in or your friend is, and you respond appropriately. You make adjustments you, that is demanded in that season. And if you do not, you will ruin yourself. You'll be frustrated with life and most likely you're gonna wound other people. Look, I, man, I see this in me. And, and if you would just take some time, to, you'd see it in yourself and I've seen it in, being in pastoral ministry for 30 years, where we, we have a extreme difficulty of being content and settled in the season that we are currently in. What I've seen is that we either long for a season that we once had, so then therefore it keeps us unsettled and discontent in the current season, or we're longing for the season to come. And I'm not trying to mount any unnecessary guilt or shame. I'm just trying to tell you that, look, what, what happens when we're looking back, longing for a season that creates that's in the past, and then we have this discontent, or we're longing for something in the future, we... We miss what God is doing in us in the now, or better yet, we miss the invitation that he has for us in the now. Because this is, this is where God wants to work in you. Yeah, he did something in you in this season before, but that season's gone. Yeah, he's, 
He's promised he's going to be with you in the future, but that season's not here yet. This is where you are. And wisdom is recognizing the season that you're currently in and making the adjustments that that season demands you. Zach Eswan, his good little book, Recovering Eden, has a little section in this chapter, and he says it really well, so I'm going to quote it, all right? It's kind of long, but we have it on the screen, so that'll keep you with me, all right? And then I'm, I'm close to being done, so in case you're wondering, where, where is he going to be done? Close to being done. So listen to what Zach has to say. Because we are committed to arrange life the way we want it, and to avoid what we do not prefer, many of us remain inflexible and unskilled in this wisdom of seasons. The preacher has taught us to name these seasons without denial, and now he teaches us to yield to them and to adjust to our expectations accordingly when they rotate through our lives and through the lives of our neighbors. A young man and woman who previously enjoyed the spontaneous evenings of a different season now have a baby. Or the teenager is no longer a toddler and the parents collide until they recognize the season change and the adjustments that are needed. A good driver is now 80 years old and the adult children have to ask that their parent no longer drive. Many of our frustrations rise from our blindness to the change of season or to the pain or joy of them, and we struggle to adjust our expectations. That is money. The result is that we try to force others to act or the world to exist within the continues, the confines of a handful of seasons that we are most comfortable with. We try to control others to stay within the seasonal behaviors that we most prefer rather than learn how to change and to adjust teachably, slowly, and adequately according to the grace of wisdom. So what, what season are you in? Every single one of us in this room is in a season of life. And do you and are you making the adjustments that this season is demanding? So look, I'll just give you a few questions here. I know in the summertime, man, a lot of us take some vacation and get away and, and maybe this will be an opportunity for you to kind of sit with a friend, with a spouse, whatever, and say, all right, let, let's define, where are we? Let's define what season of life we're in. So have you slowed down? Have you stopped? Have you reflected and thought about and observed the season that you're in right now? Do you know what this season requires of you? And are you living within its limits? There's only one who is limitless and his name is Jesus. We are human beings who are made in the image of God, 
but we have limits. And some of our frustration and angst is because we're trying to live outside of these limits that God has given to you. Last question. Are you taking your responsibility towards your friends and family seriously enough where you recognize that their seasons have been appointed by God and they need wise, thoughtful counsel, not quick, trite answers and simple formulas like Job's friend. So wisdom will require you to recognize that you have little control. And wisdom will require you to be aware, acknowledge, recognize the season of life you are in and demands that you make adjustments. So as we close, I'm reminded, and I want to remind you, that Jesus, God in the flesh, experienced all these seasons, all of them. And the reason why this is so um, helpful, and I would even say good news, is kind of what I said on Good Friday, and I don't expect any of you guys remember what I said on Good Friday. I have trouble remembering what I said on Good Friday. But the heart of what I was trying to say on Good Friday is this, is that Jesus knows whatever pain, difficulty, joy that you are going through. And Jesus knows the season that you are in right now. Because one of our longings as a human being is to have empathy. Have someone who understands what you're going through. And God does send human beings to be an extension of Jesus Christ to do that. And that's the beauty of this church. And this is what we also need to remind ourselves that Jesus does that perfectly for you. He knows exactly the season you are going through and he approaches you with sympathy and empathy. He gets it. I'll close with this quote. So when you're sitting sad on your chair in your living room, the message for you is that Jesus knew the times. He too cried as you cry. He too has been abandoned the way some of you have been abandoned. He too has overcome the way many of you have overcome. He too has sung with poetry and the brokenness of betrayal like some of you. He too has died as we all will, but in him, the sting of death has died. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of us, every single one of us in this room, giving our lives to him. He is worthy of our trust. He knows whatever season that you're going through right now, and he comes to you with compassion, sympathy, and empathy. Lean in, 
trust him. Let's pray. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash jtown.